0: thank you Chris praise team for leading us that we can indeed say it is well with our soul I want to encourage you if you have your copy of God's Word with you to please open it to the book of first chronicles first chronicles chapter 15 we're stepping away from our study in John for reasons that I'll explain in just a moment first chronicles chapter 15 it is not a stretch to say that this is a a very important day in the life of Trinity. As a matter of fact I would say it's a historic day. It's historic because for only the second time in our church's history we are installing a new Minister of Music. And as such it is a day to celebrate and to reflect. It is a day to honor God and to thank Him for His goodness. It is a day to look to the future and to recommit ourselves to follow him into that future. So with those things in mind, I wanted to step away from our study in John to come to this passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 15. And I want to look at this chapter because I believe it will guide us as a congregation as we seek to worship the Lord, and as Chris leads us in doing so. The context of this passage comes in a narrative where David, the shepherd from Bethlehem, has now become the sovereign king of Jerusalem. And in doing so, David wants to unite the twelve tribes together. They had been split into factions during the reign of Saul and his, the brief reign of Saul's son, Iblesheth. And now David wants to bring the, the tribes to become one. One people, one nation under his leadership. To do so, he recognizes that it will be important to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Now I know that when I mention the Ark of the Covenant, the first thing that comes to mind, the first image is that of Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And you're thinking, I know the Ark is somewhere in New Mexico. But I want us to step back to recognize the importance of the Ark. Not just because of what it contained, but because of what it embodied. See, the Ark of the Covenant was built under the instructions of Moses. It was an ark, it was a chest overlaid with gold. It had on the the lid of it two angels with wings outstretched, two cherubim to be specific. And in the Ark was placed a copy of the Ten Commandments representing the covenant that God had made with His people and that His people had entered into with Him. There was also a portion of Aaron's rod that had miraculously blossomed there was also a pot of manna. But the important thing is what those things embodied. Because the ark was more than just a chest to carry those things. The ark represented the very presence of God with his people. The book of Psalms tells us that God is enthroned upon the cherubim. What is on top of the ark? Cherubim. A reminder that God's very presence was associated with the ark. The ark embodied the promise of God that they are His people as signified by the Ten Commandments. It represented the power of God demonstrated by this this rod that had been cut off from its roots, but yet God made to blossom. The ark embodied the provision of God physically in that He provided manna for His people, but also spiritually because I would remind you that it was on the lid That once a year the priest would carry the blood of the lamb that had been sacrificed and would pour upon that altar to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And it was there that the justice of God and the mercy of God were demonstrated and results in our salvation. In fact, the lid of the ark is called the mercy seat. David desires to bring the ark into Jerusalem. Chapter 13 records his first attempt in doing this, and let me tell you, it did not go well. A group of men went and loaded the ark onto an ox cart. As the ark gets underway, it begins to to sway back and forth, and it looks like the ark is about to fall off, and a man by the name of Uzzah, a man who I believe had good intentions, put out his hand to steady the ark but good intentions do not negate the holiness of God and Uzzah was stricken dead at that moment at that point David halted the procession and rightly so and the ark was placed in the home of a man by the name of Obed-Edom a Gittite and God began to bless Obed-Edom's house tremendously time went by 1 Chronicles 15 or 14 tells us that David married many wives. He had many children. In fact, he went to war against the Philistines. We don't know how much time went by, but apparently it was years. And then David decides it's time to bring the ark into Jerusalem again. But this time it would be different. This time David would do it the way that God instructed. And this would be a day of celebration rather than a day of shock, surprise. And grief. And as it turned out, this day of celebration was also a day of consecration. I direct your attention to verses 1 through 15, specifically starting at verses 1 through 3, which set the scene. David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place which he had prepared for it then verses 3 through 11 record the names of the head of the Levite families that gather together and then we pick back up in verse 12 where David begins to address these leaders. He says, you are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it for the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek Him according to the rule. And by the way, this is an incredible example of wisdom. David made a mistake the first time, but he learns from it. And he comes back and he says, Lord, I messed up. Now we're going to do it your way. And so he he asked the Levites to step up and to consecrate themselves. Verse 14, so the priest and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. To consecrate means to set aside for a special purpose. It means to make holy. Engaging in their ministry was not to be done haphazardly, but with the sense and awareness that they were set apart for this purpose. For indeed, the Levites had been set apart in the time of Moses. All the descendants of Levi were called to carry the ark, to disassemble and carry the tabernacle, and then to reassemble the tabernacle. They were also given the responsibility of leading God's people in worship through song and as priests, in leading the people to be right with God, the Levites were considered a gift from God. Now I know that it's very easy as I speak of Levites and tribes and this word consecrate to begin thinking, well, that's just Old Testament language. But I would remind you the very idea of consecration is found in the New Testament. It's found in the word sanctify, to be holy. You see, the call for sanctification is not just for one specific group. It's not just for Levites or ministers, it is for all of God's people. In fact, in the passage that Nathan read earlier, Peter quotes from the book of Leviticus. And what does he do? He takes instructions given for the Levites and he applies it to all of God's people. Because now, because of the blood of Jesus and because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we are all priests. That's what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, that we have become a kingdom of priests unto our God. So the call is for us as priests, all of us, to consecrate ourselves and to be holy because God is. Now the glorious good news is this. God is calling us to be what He has already made us to be. God has made us holy. He has sanctified us and redeemed us. And He is simply calling you and I to live according to what He has already created us to be. Because when a believer begins to live in an unholy way, it's like taking a limousine into the mountains to go mudding. It's not what it was made for. We are made for holiness. And when we live holy lives, we are speaking the language of God. When we live in holiness, we are brought into close relationship with God. We cannot dwell in unholiness and claim to be close to a holy God. A few years ago, I was visiting my parents in Athens, Tennessee. And I went to the library to do some study, the E.G. Fisher Public Library. And there I saw, working behind the desk, my former French teacher from high school. Now, I took two years of French in high school, but don't be impressed. I was not a good student in high school. But I went up, and I surprised her, and I looked at her, and I said, Bonjour, Madame Brock. And she responded by going into this long, lengthy French sentence. And she was smiling and happy and speaking French. And when she finished, I responded by saying, Bonjour, Madame Brock. That's all I knew. And, I mean, if she had asked me if my pencil was yellow, I could have answered. But that's it. We weren't speaking the same language. One of us would have to adapt And it is not God who adapts. He has made us holy so that we can speak His language and be in relationship with Him and know Him and walk with Him. Holiness is indeed the language of God and He calls us to recommit ourselves to holiness on this day that we celebrate. We are to encourage one another in holiness, to push each other to grow in being like Christ. Now, Chris, since this is the day we are installing you as our minister of music, I can't let you uh, leave this service or any of these services without addressing you specifically. As I was thinking through this, I was reminded of the words of the great Charles Spurgeon, perhaps the greatest preacher of the 19th century, and still today his sermons are published and read. Spurgeon had started a school for preachers, and he recorded his lectures in a book entitled Lectures to My Students. Spurgeon said this of ministers he said it is not so much great talent that God blesses as it is likeness to Christ a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hands of God strive for holiness and congregation I would remind us that a church that is committed to holiness is an awful weapon in the hands of God now lest we begin to think that pursuing holiness means we withdraw And become this this group encircled in a ivory tower. Hunkering in a bunker. It's quite the opposite. Consecration and holiness is about service. We are consecrated to serve. This theme surfaces in verses 16 through 24. You see the Levites were to serve in specific ways. They were to carry the ark. They were to take care of the tent. They were to be the gatekeepers, the singers and the musicians. Look at what David commands in verse 16. David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments on harps and lyres and cymbals to raise sounds of joy. I mentioned I thought of our drummers whenever I heard the command to play loudly on musical instruments David picks up on this theme again later in verse 28 when he says, All Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting to the sound of the horn, trumpets and cymbals, and made loud music on harps and lyres. Every person was doing their part, fulfilling their calling to serve the Lord. Now here's the thing, though. If you have a group of of musicians, but there's not one person leading, if there's not the same sheet of music, it quickly disintegrates into chaos. So God provides. Look at verse 22. Kenaniah, leader of the Levites in music, should direct the music for he understood it. See, there was a leader. There was a director, one who stepped forward. This Kenaniah who's mentioned three times in the Old Testament steps forward to lead. Why? Because God had gifted him with understanding into music. He had talent and skill into this area to know what to do. I would remind you, the Psalms, the Psalms were hymns. They were sung. That's why when you look at the psalms, sometimes you will see prescriptions, little notations that's intended for the leader. For example, on some of the psalms, you'll see the word alamoth. It's believed that that means for female voices. In other words, at that point, let the altos, the tenors, the basses quieten down, and sopranos sing loudly. Mahaloth means pops accompanied with. And I'm going to say this in a Baptist church, dancing. All right, nobody left. Selah. That means to slow down, reflect. You'll see the word maskil, which is believed to refer to a soloist with the choir in the background. You see, I was skilled to understand to know at this point let's quiet down at this point let's come louder he was gifted and trained in this and I want to remind you that being gifted and trained are not antithetical it's like the old question are leaders born or made and the answer is yes God gifts us. He gives us gifts and skills, but we are responsible to hone those skills and talents so that we can do and be the very best that we can be. God has given every believer gifts and talents to be used according to Ephesians for the building up of the church. He has given leaders for the building up of the church. To build up the church means to strengthen it, to help it to be strong. So a strong church is a church where its members are using their gifts for the glory of God and for the sake of strengthening the church. Now, Chris has been called. There is no doubt he is gifted in many ways, and he has worked hard to hone and to utilize those skills for the glory of God. But Chris has also been called into the gospel ministry, He has been ordained as a minister of the gospel. And now, Chris, God has called you to employ those gifts here at Trinity Baptist Church. And God has called us, congregation, to join in, Chris, in using our gifts for the strengthening of this church and for the building up of the kingdom of God. It's amazing what can happen when every person works doing their job. Think of it in terms like this. If you were to come to that point and you needed four new tires for your car, and you were to take it to any store in the area and say, I needed four new tires, how long do you think it would take them to get to that? An hour? Two hours? (laughs) A day? So, what's the difference when you take it there and have to wait hours as opposed to a NASCAR event where that car pulls into the pit stop and in 14.1 seconds gets Four new tires, gas, their windshield and grill cleaned. And I think the interior done too. I'm not sure. Focus. Knowing their tasks. And intensity in doing what they are called to do. That's what happens when all join in, consecrated, seeking to serve God within His kingdom. And this is what will happen. As we commit to holiness, holiness expressed in service, doing our part, you will see that joy will magnify. Verses 25 through 28. This is a scene of joy and celebration. They are celebrating how, the, how God has worked and how the covenant God has made covenant with them, how God has had mercy and is coming in. But notice something in verse 26. And because God helped the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. The scope of theology in these chapters is amazing. You go from God who is holy, terrifying, I mean, think about the effect of seeing Yusuf drop dead because he touched the ark. And then it goes this God who is holy and awesome is present and he's helping, he's not distant. And removed, he is helping equip his people to serve him. And the response is worship and joy. We recognize that ministry, any ministry, whether it be preaching, whether it be song, whether it be counseling, whether it be serving in the sound booth or teaching, is all dependent upon the power and the help of God. It's amazing that to me, this precursors what we' are going to be studying in the next few weeks about the Holy Spirit, who is given as a helper. God is our helper. He helps through the giving of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. It's amazing to me that in two passages in the New Testament when the fullness of the Holy Spirit is discussed in Ephesians and Colossians, the fullness of the Holy Spirit results in and is accompanied with making music in our hearts and encouraging one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Isn't it interesting That when the Spirit of God is discussed and infilling people within a congregation, music is associated with that. I think the reasons for that are many-fold. I believe it's because, one, music gives us perhaps one of the best understandings of the Trinity we can gain. Now, all illustrations of the Trinity fall short. But I think in music, when you have different parts blending into one voice you can begin to grasp a little bit of God being three in one. Not understand it fully, but to understand and maybe see a bit of it. To me, it is also that music becomes an expression of what is in our hearts. That when we are full of the Spirit, there will be that awareness of joy. Because think about it, how many of us, when we are feeling happy, end up whistling or singing a tune, or or there's a song in our minds and our hearts? Our singing reveals a great deal about our walk with God. Our singing will reveal if we are walking in the fullness of the Spirit. You see, congregational music is not incidental to worship. It's not the totality of worship, but it's not a side note either. No pun intended. It's a crucial expression of our walk with the Lord. Now, I recognize as I say that That there can be a temptation when we come into corporate worship to hide the pain in our hearts. In other words, there can be that temptation to put on the happy face. Because we're not always joyful. But I would encourage you that when that moment comes and there is a temptation not to worship. To recognize that joy can lift you. See, there's a warning at the end of this passage. Look at verse 29. As the ark of the covenant of the Lord came to the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David dancing and rejoicing. And she despised him in her heart. Time doesn't permit me to do an in-depth study of Michael. But to me, her story is tragic. Every man that she loved betrayed her and used her. Michael was the daughter of Saul. When David was rising in power, Saul saw a way to have a spy in David's camp, so he gave Michael to David as a wife. And it was told Michael loved David. She helped David, and then David abandoned her. Later, she had remarried, and apparently, this was a happy marriage. Until David decided that to reestablish himself as king, he needed to reclaim Michael. And when he did, it said that her husband followed her, weeping. You understand, Michael was hurt. That's why she looked upon David and despised him. But here's the tragedy. Her pain was so great, she missed everything else that God was doing. look to the one who can heal that hurt David serves as in many ways uh, an example of that verse 27 gives us detail of what David was wearing which is curious David it says was clothed with a robe of fine linen and he also wore linen ephod that's curious because that's the clothing of priests the Torah there's a clear distinction That priest only and the Levites only are to lead in worship. And when they establish a king, God was very clear. The king was not to be the priest. In fact, when Saul tried to act like the priest, it did not go well for Saul. But here's David, apparently with the blessing of God. That's because David is pointing us to the one true king-priest. There's one other time in the Old Testament that a king is mentioned as priest, and his name is Melchizedek. The book of Genesis. Both of them point to Jesus, our king and our priest. So the question is as we come and we consecrate ourselves to worship, seeking joy, seeking to serve, will we focus upon Christ, who is our king and priest, leading us in worship? You see, the bottom line is it's not me leading worship, it's not Chris, it's no other person on staff actually, it's Christ. And if we will come in focused upon Him, we will see the power of God displayed. The temptation is for us to think only in individual terms. But God has given us a picture in nature of how more can be accomplished when we unite in worship and serving than when we go alone. In a few months, when winter weather starts to arrive, we will see geese start to fly south. And you'll notice that the geese will be flying in a V formation. Scientists state that geese, by flying and working together like that, fly 70% further than any goose would fly alone. By working together, more is accomplished. We are the body of Christ. Let's commit to work together, to worship, to serve. And to glorify Him. I want to ask you if you will to bow your heads with me now. I want to lead us in a prayer. And after this prayer Chris is going to lead us again in song. And I ask that this be a time that we recommit ourselves in our worship of the Lord. Recommit ourselves to holy service. Father thank you for loving us. Thank you for equipping us, for helping us. Father, we ask for your grace and mercy that we would be what you have already made us to be through Jesus. Grant that we will be a holy people dedicated to serving you so that Christ is honored. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.